been a couple weeks, and, uh, and so I'm excited to be able to preach this morning, spend time in the Word with you, to get back in 2 Corinthians. I uh, was so disappointed to miss last week and um, with the baptisms and the new members, and, uh, but yet thankful to the Lord and uh, grateful for what He continues to do in each of our lives. Thank you for giving me the opportunity uh, to head back home and uh, spend some time there with my brothers and my family. That was a special and unique blessing to us. So 2 Corinthians, uh, you might remember, just catch you up real fast, Paul uh, is now dealing with kind of a new accusation that's been made against him. And the accusation is, 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 an, is not too kind. It's really this, you're crazy. Uh, and, and they don't mean that in, in any other way than exactly how that sounds. They see how Paul's doing ministry. They see what he's doing. They see how he's pursuing people, how he's uh, ch- chastening people, how he's exhorting and edifying and admonishing. They see how he's suffering. He's going without food, without money at times, without even clothes at times. He's getting beaten. And they look at Paul and they say, you are absolutely crazy with the way you do ministry. And so a few weeks ago, what we began to see is Paul saying, no, you think it's crazy because you don't understand how to do ministry. All ministry that is love-empowered, love-fueled, will look crazy to lost people and immature believers because it's costly ministry. And so that's really the whole idea that he's going to be unpacking from this part in chapter 5 all the way down through about the first verse of chapter 7. And so it's all centered on that theme. Uh, I'm not crazy. This is what true ministry is. And so this morning, what we get an opportunity to see is how Paul thought about ministry. And I love this because if you want to understand someone, you want to get how they're thinking. It's like you read a biography and you, you want to discover how did Winston Churchill make the decisions he made and what drove his decision making. You've got to read a biography and figure out who was he as a kid and as a teenager and as a young adult and how did he arrive to be uh, who he was during World War II. You've got to know how they think. How does Paul think about ministry? And, and that'll be our idea this morning. And really, a ministry picture is worth a thousand words. Paul thinks in an image. So if you direct your attention down, 2 Corinthians, I'm going to read in chapter 5. Pick up in verse 16, and really this pericope, this is another one of those unfortunate chapter divisions, really goes, this thought pattern goes down through verse 2 of chapter 6. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled, to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This morning we really want to come to understand Believers who see the reality of grace will minister out of love. Now, if you're already thinking ahead, you're realizing that I'm I'm making a fairly condemnatory statement about the Corinthians. Because I've just told you that many of those in Corinth, they don't understand why Paul is ministering the way he is, how he ministers. They don't understand love ministry. They're not ministering the same way. He'll ultimately get to the end of chapter 6 and start just frankly dropping some bombs on these folks. And yes, this is what I'm saying. They are not living in the reality of grace. They don't see that their position in Christ is because of God's unmerited favor. It's something they didn't earn. They don't deserve. They don't get that. And as a result, that they don't live breathing grace, they don't minister out of love. Now, the way we want to think about that, though, is the way we think about anything, and that's in pictures. 
See, the reality is the way the human brain is wired, language conjures pictures. And, and so when I, when I say certain things, you think certain ways. So if I said, for example, think of a house. Now, there's always an obstinate one or two in the crowd. They're like, no, I'm not going to think of a house. I'm going to think of a tent. I'm going to think of a ship. So, so you, you know, go ahead, check out now. You know, we'll join us back maybe later. But, but for everyone else that wants to go along and understand this thought experience, just think of a house. And you're thinking of some kind of a house, and maybe you're thinking of the house you grew up in. Maybe you're thinking uh, of a house you'd love to buy. Maybe you're thinking of some, I don't know, some HGTV show that you saw a house flipped. My wife and I have discovered, apparently at Lexington Medical Center, they have a rule, every TV is tuned to HGTV. Uh, I've watched more HGTV in the last two months than my whole life combined. And so whatever kind of house, but you're thinking of a house. Now, what's important to understand about the way we're wired is when I say that to you, and I say think of a house, it's actually also very culturally informed. You see, if I were to ask somebody that lived in Brazil in a favela or a slum of Brazil to think of a house, they're not going to think of the house you thought of. Or if I ask someone who grew up as an Inuit in Alaska or somebody in Moscow or somebody who grew up in the Swiss Alps, and I say think of a house, they are going to think of an abode that people live in, but I guarantee you it's going to be radically different than the kind of house you thought of because it's culturally informed. Language is cultural. It's part of the problem why we talk past so, one another so frequently, even out in the world, about whether it's politics or, or philosophy. Language is culturally informed, and it's linked to images. And so it begins to raise the question, uh, how do we communicate in a way that gets us all on the same page with ministry? So when I say ministry... I don't want you to just think of a definition or a static term, but if you're thinking rightly, you'll begin to think of a picture. Now, I don't know what picture you think of when you think of ministry. I don't, I don't, think you've, I don't know if you think of some ministry you've done or some ministry you've experienced. I don't know if you think of a big picture ministry. I, I don't know if you think of a radio station or, or a TV a station that broadcasts religious things. I don't know if you think of church. I don't know if you're thinking of pastoral ministry or deacon service or ministry you've done this morning, bringing food for our fellowship or what have you. But when I say ministry, you are thinking something. But if we're all going to get on the same page, I've got to somehow transcend culture and somehow help you get an image that's like enough that we're all pulling the same direction. Now, this concept of thinking in pictures becomes even more imperative when we're talking about something that's critical like this. And in 2002, General Motors was dealing with problems with their Chevy Cobalt. I had an ignition switch problem. An engineer had done research on it, wrote a report on it. He chose a subpar ignition switch, and they began to run into problems. And so when they released the report, they titled it as a customer convenience issue. Basically, the switch could go dead on you while you're driving. It would also disable the airbags. That's not a good situation. And they knew, though, to replace it was going to be a customer convenience issue, so that's how they labeled it. Unfortunately, it killed 13 people. And when they went back and they began to once again evaluate, why didn't we fix this? It really wasn't that General Motors didn't care about 13 lives. It's that every group that would look at it kept seeing this phrasing, this titling, this word picture, customer convenience. They thought of customers standing in long lines at dealerships waiting to get their ignition switch replaced. The assumption became 13 people who died weren't willing for the inconvenience. It was only after 13 people died they revisited it. Someone titled it differently. They titled it as a safety defect. And suddenly the recalls went out and the changes happened. Because when you think customer convenience, you have a completely different word picture than safety defect. One costs lives, the other one just costs time. Now I tell you all that because what Paul does here in this passage is he gives us a word picture of ministry. He wants you and I and the Corinthians all understanding and thinking the same thing when it comes to ministry. And so here's our task this morning. First, can we get a clear picture of it from Paul? And secondly, I'll answer that one, yes, we can. But secondly, what is that, and do we live in the reality of that? What is the picture of your ministry that you do? And so believers, ultimately, who will see the reality of grace will minister out of love. Now, 
Uh, to get there, we, we want to start right where Paul starts, and he starts with some new images, some new pictures. So if you look back down in the text, you'll see some of Paul's language this way. He says, from now on, therefore, verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh, or we see no one, or we think of no one any longer according to the flesh. Now, we might wonder, what, is, what does he mean by that? So he clarifies. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What he means is he thought of Jesus in a very fleshly way. Uh, what he means is he thought of Jesus just like a man. He thought of Jesus just like another rabbi, another teacher, um, maybe even as some kind of a prophet, but ultimately as a false prophet, because Paul goes on mission to kill all his followers, track them down, martyr them, uh, famously is present and participatory in the martyrdom of Stephen. Uh, it, it clearly didn't end there because everybody, the Christians are terrified of him. When he ultimately says, I've, I've seen Christ on the road to Damascus, I've been blinded, no one wants to go near him. Uh, because Paul, previous to his salvation, thought of Jesus just as another man, someone else. That's what he means when he's saying, I thought of Jesus in a fleshly way. He thought of everybody that way. It's just another person. You and I filter each other through preset determinations. We think of other people as uh, that's, that's a nice person or, or that's a good person or she's a kind lady or uh, they are a friend to me. Uh, I was buying something this week and, uh, at the auto parts store and uh, I was buying a battery and I was joking with the ladies and I said, hey, can I get a good guy discount? And she said, I don't know if you're a good guy. And I said, well, actually, I'm a very wicked guy, but I've been saved by Jesus. Um, there was no discount for that either, apparently, with the batteries. Uh, and, and so we think of each other in those kinds of terms. That's very fleshly, though. This one's my friend. That one's not my friend. That one's my neighbor. This one's not my neighbor. Um, we categorize. I, I was at the pool with my kids the other week, and, and you unwittingly try to relate relationships. You see kids in the pool. You try to figure out who are their parents. Here's some screaming hellions. Somebody needs, who are those kids' parents, right? But somebody needs to step in. You try to put couples together, figure out who is who, and what's the relationship. We're all wired this way. All that's fleshly thinking. It's not sinful. It's just only thinking in human terms. And Paul said, first thing is he had new eyes and began to think about people in very new ways. And the first one he thought about differently was Jesus. This is a result of salvation. This is a result of the redemptive work of Christ uh, coming upon him and in his life that he begins to see things very, very different. And so Paul knows he needs to help them see things very, very differently. Paul lived in the land of self, thinking he was free when actually he was a slave to sin. Paul wants them to understand what freedom really looks like. And so his reference here. Uh, in verse 17, we're going to come back later because he's picking up from a passage in Isaiah. He begins to explain this newness of sight. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And he will explain that even in a little bit greater depth because he says the righteousness of Christ has come upon us. The newness here, we need to think of it this way. It is identity in Christ. We now have the righteousness of Christ. Prior to your salvation... You are wicked, you are lost, and you're a sinner. Uh, you disobey, and you're dishonest, you're deceptive, you are ruled by your passions, anger, lust, fear of man, ambition to get ahead. Uh, your sin is revealed from the Word, as the Word tells you what is holy and what is not. You know, I remember being under such intense conviction as a nine-year-old little boy, realizing I was a sinner, my eyes being opened to that. I'd heard the gospel hundreds, if not thousands of times, even by the time I was nine, and had always rejected it and didn't understand it, but suddenly God opened my eyes and I saw the sinner that I was. Look, I wasn't going out and partying every week and smoking pot and drinking and, and, and committing crimes, stealing things. I, I, morally, I tried to be a good kid, but I was lost. and It was revealed through my disobedience and my disrespect and my dishonesty, and I knew I was a sinner and I was condemned. And I was covered in filth, this filth of sin. But when, by God's grace, he opened my eyes and he gave me a new heart, I turned from my sin, repented, and put my faith in Christ alone. And in that moment, put on the robes of Jesus. And so his righteousness began to cover me. And, and later in the New Testament, Paul tells us God gives us a new mind. Don't think like you used to think, Ephesians chapter 4. He gives us a new heart. We are to love differently. 
uh, Jesus boiled the gospel down to those two core truths, right? Love God, love others. Prior to that, you love yourself. And so new mind, new loves, new desires, new attitude, new action, all those things become new. Now, when he says all things have passed away, that's what he's talking about. Being ruled by self, being ruled by this world, living for you. He's not saying that you become sinless. He's not saying that you don't ever struggle. He's not saying that you're not still in the flesh, this world. But he's saying all this new mind and new thinking, new desires, part of this results in a new way of seeing Jesus and a new way of seeing others. I can actually really put it this way. When you really see who Jesus is, God in the flesh, perfect life, died a sinless death voluntarily for you, when you really see that and your eyes are open to that reality, you will repent and put your faith in Christ. You will. Jesus makes it very, very clear with the man who finds the treasure hidden in the field. He sells everything with joy to get the treasure. And Paul is telling us this new way of seeing Jesus, this newness, also results in a new way of seeing others. And so it's a picture of love. All of this is fleshing out what he said back in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Paul is saying this love of Jesus, when my eyes have been opened to what Jesus has done for me, Jesus' love for me controls me, but now also Jesus' love in me controls the way I do ministry and the way I relate to other people. Are you controlled by the love of Christ? Are you constrained by his rescue of you to live differently? Becomes the question he's asking and pointing out to the Corinthians. Now, Paul presses on though, and he begins to explain further this love of God and love of others as it relates to ministry itself. In verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. And so we love God. God, God has, has mended the relationship. God has fixed uh, the divide, or closed the divide. He has fixed the fight. Uh, we can think of it in very basic terms as reconciliation is two friends separated by a fright fight now brought back together again that's very basic but they're reconciled uh, and we understand in reconciliation there's there's confession right there's there's repentance and there's forgiveness all that has to be there for there to be reconciliation uh, i guarantee you if you go down to the 7-eleven and and you take your own cup and steal some slurpee and you leave uh they're going to want some money for that and and so you're not going to be reconciled to be reconciled you are have to own what you did and pay back, right? There's got to be some kind of repentance of I'm turning, I'm restoring so that we can be reconciled. Paul is saying that we have been reconciled to God. I think this is very, very, very difficult in our culture because for you to be reconciled to God must mean that you were first an enemy of God. And that is offensive to people. I, I want to I put it this way. So let's ask a question, answer it biblically, right? Does God love everybody? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does he love saved people differently, uniquely, deeper? Absolutely. Without question. And so when we talk about being reconciled, we have to own the reality that we were enemies. So your lost friends and family and your lost neighbors are at odds with God in their desperate need of being brought back together. We love him because he has first loved us. First John teaches us in chapter 4 that if we are followers of God, we will love God because his love has been put in us. And so Paul's telling us with these new eyes, this new reality, first and foremost, there's a love of God. But then secondarily in verse 19, there's a love of others. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, once again here, the message of reconciliation. God has set us on mission to love others with this message of reconciliation. And yes, it's, it's being reconciled to other people that we're at odds with, but it's also bringing them the truth of the gospel whereby they also can be reconciled to God himself. Now, Paul 
here in this moment um, thinks very Pauline. And what I mean by that is sometimes Paul talks from fruits to roots. He stops at the end and then works his way back to the start. Most of us don't tend to think that way. We tend to think linear left to right, older to newer, roots to fruits, base level of the building to tip top of the skyscraper. Because our question would be this, how in the world can you and I participate in a ministry of reconciliation? Even though we're saved now, we're very well acquainted with how wicked we are. We're very uh, aware of our sinfulness, right? In fact, in fact, 1 John 1 tells us that anybody who claims Christ and says he's not a sinner doesn't know Jesus. We're actually more aware of how sinful we are. It's, it's ironic. You get saved and you're very acquainted with your sin and you realize you're wicked and you're in desperate need of a Savior. But then you get saved and as you're growing in Christ, you start, God starts opening your eyes to all these other ways you didn't even realize at the time were sinful. Suddenly you were short and curt with your spouse. And you always thought of that as personality. They rubbed you the wrong way. They pushed your buttons. Then you get saved and you start realizing, oh, my shortness and curtness is a lack of love for my dear spouse. Uh, I don't want to sacrificially love them. I don't want to serve them. Uh, I don't want to honor them. Uh, they annoy me. They irritate me. It should be my way, not their way. And suddenly this is something to repent of, not just a personality quirk to work on. Um, you are uh, consistently late for work. And you just always thought of it as, well, I'm just a very laid-back individual, you know, uh, time is just an ethereal concept. Who even knows if it really exists, right? So who cares? And so, you're, but your boss cares, right? And and so you're constantly late for work. You're supposed to be there. You're supposed to be working, or you steal time at work. You you take a longer lunch break, or you steal pens from work. It's so funny growing up in Baltimore, surrounded by all these government buildings. It's like every church you went in, there'd all be all these black push button pens that said U.S. government only, right? Like everybody's stealing the pens. So, but but you do this, and then you get saved. And suddenly you realize, all this is theft. You start to get convicted over it. And so suddenly it doesn't become the fact that your parents were very laid back and you're laid back too, but it becomes the reality is you don't care more about others than yourself. And so believers are very acquainted with their sin. So the question becomes, how do I have a ministry of reconciliation? We flesh it out in other ways. Um, we become aware of a family member or another believer or a neighbor who is in some sinful pattern of life, and we want to present to them the gospel, and we know they're going to accuse us of this. What are you, some Pharisee? How dare you judge me? We know that's going into this, and guess what? We start preaching that same thing to our own heart. Who am I to confront them? Who am I to share the gospel with them? They know all my failings and weaknesses. And so how is it that we do ministry of reconciliation being so well acquainted with who we really are. And so Paul goes from fruits to roots. And you can see this in the text, picking up down here in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. That's the tip top, that's the fruit. You do it because you're on mission for it. An ambassador who does not represent their king needs to get fired. But, but he stops it. How can we do this ministry of reconciliation? We are ambassadors of Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here's the ministry. Now, how do we do this? Step down. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let's flip all this around. How in the world do I do this ministry of reconciliation, of loving God and loving others? I do it because I begin with the positional truth that I'm no longer clothed in the pig-stained filth of my past, but I walk in the newness of life clothed in the righteous robes of jesus now it's all that that means right so what does it mean to be clothed with the righteousness of christ yes it's positional god looks at us when he looks at us he does not see the sinful past of steve johns oh to god be the glory he looks at me and he sees the righteousness of his son applied to me so it's positional but it is also practical right so the righteousness of Christ also means that I'm called to walk in humility. Matthew 18, I see somebody else uh, in sin. I should go to them uh, and confront them. And I should think about the log hanging out of my face before I think about the speck in their eye. Galatians 6, uh, someone is in need of rescue spiritually. He says, go in humility, understanding that you could sin in the very same ways. 
Well, that's righteousness of Christ to approach people in humility. It's righteousness of Christ to approach people in love. I see this need in their life, and I want to serve them. I'm going to be, so I'm going to walk in the righteousness of Christ, speaking the truth in love, Ephesians chapter 4. Confronting sin. Rescuing one uh, that they might turn even, James 5. They've wandered off the path. You're rescuing them. I'm going to do it in love because it's the righteousness of Christ. Yeah, they may throw rocks. You're being a Pharisee. But I'm going to walk in the righteousness of Christ with humility and love and grace and truth speech to them. And because I'm going to walk in the righteousness of Christ, I am therefore set free, hear me now, to be an ambassador of him. Not based on who I am, but based on who he has made me to be. Does that make sense? So this is mission. So, so Paul goes from fruits down to roots. We just want to think about it from roots up to fruits now the second part then it's not just love about ministry he gives us two quick truths about the nature of ministry we're not going to park long here but they're important to understand first of all notice that it's a ministry of proclamation and we see it in a couple of different ways he, he says that we're ambassadors ambassadors must speak he, he says we're to represent the truth we are making an appeal um, this is all speaking into people's lives here's what's important for that you can't make people right with Jesus. You can't even make people get right with you. All you can do, though, is speak the truth in a loving way that they need to hear and trust God to do the work. This is critical to the way we understand ministry. Ministry is never designed and can never be formed with the goal to change them because you can't do it. And, and all kinds of terrible things happen when you do that. Terrible things. So here, here's an example. Parents. Parents, you have a very small child. All parents desperately want their kids to get saved. You know, Christianity Parenting 101. That's what we all want. And so we want our child to get saved. We're, we indoctrinate them. We, we, and, and I make no apologies for that. You, you teach them the truth. You, you challenge them with the truth. And then there comes this moment, and your little child's, I don't know, three you desperately want them to get saved. They, 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 they scream if mommy or daddy walks out of the room. The last thing in the world they want to do is be separate from mommy and daddy. And so in that moment, I want to do ministry, and I want to love them, and I want them to be saved. My goal is for them to be saved, so what do I do? And so some parents, and, and I pray the majority of parents, uh, and I pray as we continue to disciple parents in our church, you, what you should do in that moment is continue to proclaim the gospel to your child. Read to them Jesus Storybook Bible. Do family worship with them. Tell them of your own salvation. Continue to talk about Jesus in the glorious promised land of being with him one day. But what some parents do in that moment is, do you want to be with mommy and daddy forever? Don't you want to be with Jesus with mommy and daddy one day? Do you know what hell is like? Do you remember the fire we made out back when we roasted hot dogs? And made s'mores? Do you remember how you got burned when you grabbed this stick? Would you like to go somewhere where you burn forever? There isn't a three-year-old on the planet that's going to say, um, yeah, that sounds like a grand plan. Well, if you would like to do that, just repeat after mommy or daddy. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Would you please forgive me? Would you please forgive me? Come into my heart, come into my heart, so I'd be with you forever. So I'd be... Now you're saved. Parent feels great. They've made it their goal to save their child rather than to be a proclaimer of the truth. Now, way to use tender subject to make a point. But we do that with our children, we do it with our spouses, we do it with our friends, we do it with our neighbors, we do it with other church members. I want to control the way you live your life. And when we think that, and when we try to do ministry that way, we will ultimately throw doctrine and theology out the window. And we will think we've been successful. And Paul's had to teach the Corinthians all along the way, Success is not marked by obvious apparent fruit. It's marked by faithfulness to the truth. And he said, trust God to reveal one day. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. Trust him to make it apparent. And so it's important here to understand the ministry is one of proclamation, not control. Now, don't get discouraged. Because this is the same Paul that said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power unto salvation. And the reality is in this mystical moment, as the gospel goes forth, 
at times God's spirit then moves in someone's life and it is like making dead bones come alive. And so do not be discouraged to present the gospel. Do not be discouraged to speak truth. Do not be discouraged to, to persist in the discipleship of others. But trust God to be doing the work while you're preaching and proclaiming the truth to them, calling them to rescue, calling them to salvation, calling them to sanctification, and trusting God to do it. Ministry is a ministry of proclamation, but secondarily it is a ministry of righteousness. He's made this abundantly clear that we might become the righteousness of God. We are being made like Christ. We are being conformed to His image. Uh, the fruits of the Spirit are to be born out of believers, Galatians 5. And so, yeah, brotherly kindness and, and self-control and forgiveness and forbearance, but we are also to be humble, holy, loving, forgiving, pursuing, serving, and grace-filled lovers of other people. We are to forbear, which is to put up with people, beyond what we think we can put up with to endure in difficult relationships to be friends with people that we would otherwise not be friends with but we are because they also know jesus to do life and ministry in such a way that says the people that god has gathered around me are people for me to love and serve not primarily for me to look at as people who need to love and serve me Jesus came as the suffering servant, getting on his hands and knees and washing feet and speaking truth and caring for others. That's the way Jesus thought about ministry. So when we have the righteousness of Christ in us and on us, we will function in the same way. Now, you may have noticed as we're working through that, Paul keeps using this term. And this is the term that I think it's most importantly for us to get a picture of this morning, and it's reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled? How do we think through reconciliation? And this is when Paul does something absolutely amazing in the text. He makes one reference to Isaiah, uh, one passage in Isaiah, and then he quotes explicitly from another passage in Isaiah. Now, a uh, little bit of history lesson, so hang with me, right? Um, you know I love history, but this is one of those that biblical history really matters for you to get what's going on. Paul is dropping some bombs here that unless you understand history, you're going to blow right past and say, those are nice verses, I'm not sure what that means. And we don't want that. Isaiah is what we call a pre-exilic prophet. Now, I, I know some of you are already like, what in the world does that mean? Exilic is exile. Nation of Israel, trucking along promised land living we got kings going on we got bad kings happening right we move quickly from saul to david to solomon rehoboam jeroboam jeroboam we got mess going on in israel they start sacrificing their children to idols uh to molech in the valley of megiddo uh the the northern kingdom become idolatrous and all this stuff is happening and god starts warning them and this is the basis of the warning if you don't repent and turn back to me I'm going to send you into captivity. And it's called the exile. Be exiled out of the land. And he starts warning them through all these prophets. Uh, I'm going to send the Assyrians in. They're going to take out the northern kingdom, ten tribes. I'm going to send Babylon, and they're going to mess up Assyria and take the southern kingdom away, if you guys don't get right. Most of the Old Testament in the prophets is all about this time period, either leading up to it pre-exile, pre-exilic, or mid-exile, there's a couple prophets there. You know, you know some, of these, some of these names, right? So some of those pre-exilic prophets are guys like Jonah and Jeremiah, Hosea. Uh, you remember the whole story, go marry this, this woman who's going to become a prostitute, and she's going to have all these kids, and you have to take care of them. She's going to keep running from you. All of that is to picture what Israel's doing. They're going after other gods. They're supposed to be my wife. Um, and, and yet they keep running away, and, and I'm going to keep chasing her, but bad things are going to happen. Guys like Obadiah. And so you have all these pre-exile prophets, and the most prominent one is this guy named Isaiah. And Isaiah gives all these warnings. These bad things are going to happen. You need to pay attention. You need to listen. Then you've got some mid-exilic prophets, guys like Ezekiel and Daniel. Daniel's prophesying in the exile. He's there in Babylon. And then you finish up the, the New Testament with some post-exilic prophets, uh, and, and there's a couple of those guys. So the majority of the Old Testament, after you get out of Proverbs and Song of Songs, focuses on this exile. It's a, it's a massive event. It's a, it's a tremendous turning point in the nation of Israel. 
So when it happens, it's devastating. 605, 597, 586, three different seasons of exile. First one, they come in, they wipe a bunch of people out, and they take back the nobility to Babylon. Uh, come service. Second one, they come back, they take any skilled tradesmen. Uh, third one, they come back, they really destroy completely the city walls and uh, the temple con- construction and uh, the temple complex, and they take anybody else of value. So the only people that get left in Jerusalem are either too young to worry about hiking them all the way to Babylon, too old to worry about them, or they don't have any skills, or they're somehow disabled, and, and so they don't want to have to fuss with them. And so they just literally destroy it. And there's psalms where the, the Jews are sitting beside the river in Babylon, weeping and wailing to God, songs of lament. A lot of them show up in our Psalter, um, where they're crying out to God for deliverance. And all of this is God saying, I'm putting you away from me. God, the, the language God actually uses, he said, I divorced her from me. I have nothing more to do with her. And so for 70 years, uh, the nation of Israel is in exile, suffering, striving in Babylon. And then after 70 years, which is how long God said he would take, uh, a return begins to happen, and a new king shows up in Babylon. And the first guy he lets go back is this guy named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel goes, and he takes about 42,000 people with him, and he goes back. uh, And the way the king of Babylon said, anybody wants to go back and go back. Any Jews want to go back? You can go back. So about 42,000 of them went with Zerubbabel, and they rebuilt the temple. And, and they want to rebuild where you worship. That's what's most important. And people are weeping and crying because this temple doesn't match the previous temple. you got some very young children uh, that were left in the land, and then they're, they're not older. They're in their 80s, maybe even 90s, and, and they see Zerubbabel's temple, and they're not excited about it. And you still have all this conflict. But God had said, anybody who wants to go back and go back. And then you fast forward like another 60 years or so, and then this guy Ezra shows up. And Ezra goes back, and he wants to help the kingdom or the community get back together. And so again, the decree goes out, any Jews that want to go back can go back with Ezra. Ezra, about 1,500 this time. So you get about 42,000, I get about 1,500, want to go back. Ezra takes the 1,500 back, and he runs into all kinds of issues because you've got all this intermarriage going on, and uh, there, there's no real structure, there's no governance happening. So he's trying to give it, so we've got worship temple, and we've got community getting rebuilt. And then this last guy, Nehemiah, goes back about 15 years later. So Nehemiah leads a third group back to rebuild the city walls. Honestly, this should have been just an amazing time of reconciliation god's people now brought home i mean the closest we can even come maybe maybe to understanding some of this would be like post-world war ii when you end up with a new nation state of israel and the jews are allowed to go back and have their own nation once again They've been taken from them. And coming on the heels of the Holocaust, this is a massive moment. That, that might be the closest. Or, or if you and I had to flee our homes because of a hurricane warning, and, and then it devastates Columbia, and we can't come back, and, and so we get semi-settled where we're at. But let's be honest, you want to get too settled because you really want to go back home. That's my home. Even if your roof's been destroyed, even if your house's been destroyed, you kind of want to rebuild, and that's my place. And so suddenly you get to go back. This should have been an amazing moment because to the Jews, to meet with God, they needed the temple. They needed priests, and they needed a structure. They needed a government. And this is God saying, come back to me. Be reconciled to me. This is the picture that Isaiah, that Paul gives. He thinks of himself as a modern-day deliverer. You can see this in the text if you look at verse 17. Verse 17, Paul is picking up on, unquestionably, a theme from Isaiah 43. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's referencing this motif or idea from Isaiah, the pre-exilic prophet. Isaiah said, all this is going to come, but eventually you'll get to go back home. And this is what it will look like when you get to go back home. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. What did they do under Zerubbabel? They rebuilt the temple, but then a bunch of people were whining about it. And it like the glory of the old one. He says, no, Isaiah's telling them, no, when the new comes, embrace it. 
This will be God's gift to you and his kindness to you. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Why does that matter? It matters because at some point you got to march from Babylon all the way back to Israel. And how are you going to get from point A to point B? This is like road trip that no one wants. Uh, Seventy years before, people took this road trip and it was ugly. Babylonians are killing people on the way. The Assyrians, when they took the northern kingdom into captivity back to Assyria, you know what they did? They marked about every, roughly every mile with a pile of over 600 skulls of Jews. Those were their mile markers. This is not a fun trip. And he's saying, but when you come back to me, it will be as though you're walking through a desert that now has fresh water, rivers, and springs. This is like when you're taking a road trip with your family, and you've been on the road all of about, I don't know, 13 minutes and two seconds, and they got to go to the bathroom. And they got to go right now. And then all of a sudden, at the next exit, there's a QT. And it's like, wah, because it's got clean bathrooms and it's got good coffee. And you can survive. He's saying this trip back to me, reconciliation, the path of reconciliation is going to be a wonderful journey. It's going to be a journey you will embrace and will be wonderful. Why on earth is Paul referencing Isaiah and the restoration of Israel here? Because Paul has a picture in his head of what ministry is like. And one picture of the ministry of reconciliation is as a leader bringing refugees back home. Taking them back to their roots. Uh, Several years ago, I took my oldest on a trip back to where I grew up in Baltimore. And drove by this house that I lived on on Wilkins Avenue, end row home, had a separate garage out back. And it was, it, was, it was weird. I mean, I had not been there in over 20 years. And it was like going back home. And I'm pointing out to them, oh, this is where this happened, and this is where this happened, and that's where, that's where I learned how to ride a bike, and it was called Little Red, had a handle on the back of it. My dad would push me down the hill and, and drove down the alleyway. Oh, that's where I was hanging out with these older teen kids uh, who were all... <laughs> I was, I was five going on 15, um, sitting on the log. My dad had told me not to go down there, and I saw my dad drive by in a Jeep, and he caught me with these older teen kids that were hanging out up to no good. And I got in trouble. Oh, there's the, still the tree. Drove to my house on Baltimore Street, and this is where I would go down the sledding hill, and this is, this is where we would play Little League Baseball, and, and it was like a return. Can you imagine what it would be like to be Zerubbabel, and you're leading 42,000 back 70 years later, many who have never seen it, and you get to say, oh, this is where... Abraham built the altar with Isaac. And this is is where David won the battles against the Philistines. And this is the temple complex we're going to rebuild where we meet with God. He's like a trail boss leading people trying to get to the West Coast during the the gold rush or to get some land. There's some immigrants new to the country and they need a place to farm. And he takes them and he says, he knows he's going to crest the next valley and it's going to be lush green grass, pasture land as far as they can see, place to build crops and a family and a home. And he gets to be the one to lead them and say, look at all this that is for you. Paul views ministry with that picture. He thinks of ministry as one who's leading refugees back home. Now, how does that impact you and I? Why on earth are you quiet to people who need ministry of reconciliation? Why would you rob from them the untold delight of the pasture land of Christ? Because you're afraid they'll reject you? You're afraid they'll despise you? You think too little of your identity in Jesus and that you walk in his righteousness and so you're afraid of what they'll accuse you of? Paul kept going after the Corinthians. Paul kept writing letters to them. He kept taking painful visits to them. He kept on keeping on. Listen to me. I know some of you are weary in ministry and I want you to know you need to have a picture of grace that infuses you with a mindset that the ministry you have is to bring refugees back home. 
to bring them to the land that God has promised to them. Paul views himself as a Zerubbabel or as an Ezra or as a Nehemiah. He sees it as rebuilding a place to worship for people. Zerubbabel built the temple. He views it as a way of bringing people into community as Ezra goes back to rebuild the community and the governmental structures. He sees it as a way to build a location, a city. As Nehemiah went back, he knows that he is inviting lost people to come to a city that has not been built with hands and is under the rule of a king that they have not yet seen. You know, in Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah's day, it took Darius and Cyrus saying, anybody that wants to go back can go back. And so 42,000 one time, 1,500 another time. They don't tell us how many went back with Nehemiah, but it wasn't many. Anybody that wants to could. How do refugees come home to Jesus today? Well, as Jesus said, anyone who thirsts may come. Come and drink of the living water. Turn from your sin. Confess Christ and put your faith in him. And experience the joy of worship and community and being ruled by a king. So as Paul is attempting to explain his ministry of love, he's giving us a mental picture of the way he thinks about his ministry. As a Zerubbabel, an Ezra, or a Nehemiah leading refugees back home. He wants to lovingly rescue people bound by their sin and the captivity of their sin to the freedom in Christ. But there's another way to think about reconciliation because that's not the only quote that he gives us from Isaiah. He kind of bookends it. And he makes a fascinating statement down here in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, working together with him, still describing this ministry, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What? And he knows that that's going to make people go, what? So he goes on, and now he quotes explicitly from Isaiah. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul is telling them, don't squander grace, right? When he says, don't receive the grace of God in vain, that's what it means. Don't squander it. This is a gift to you. Don't don't blow this moment. Don't, Don't waste this shot that God has given you with grace. Paul thinks about grace lots that way, frequently that way. The love of Christ for him and the love of Christ in him controls him, as he said in verse 14. Love that he did not deserve. Love that he has not earned, but because of God's unmerited favor through his grace to him. In Galatians 2.20, he says that the life he now lives is in Christ, crucified in him. In Philippians 3.10, he says the singular goal of his life is that he might experience living out the crucifixion of Christ in him. In Acts 20, he says, I labored among the Ephesian elders in the church at Ephesus. I did not cease night and day to warn you with tears. And in 1 Corinthians 15, trying to tell them what ministry is like and how grace should drive you, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. Now, how do we know that? Because on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was for I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. It's very clear that in Paul's mind, to receive grace in vain is to be lazy. To do nothing. And so we begin to realize this key takeaway is so critical to us that when we see grace, we do ministry in love. And when we don't do ministry in love, we think very little of the grace that we've received. It's a grace problem. It's not an opportunity problem. It's not a schedule problem. It's not a money problem. It's not a life's too busy problem. It's not a I-can't-do-it problem. It's a grace problem. Paul says, don't you dare receive the grace of God in vain. He's quoting to them and then adjusting Isaiah 49.8. 
Isaiah 49, 8a, thus says the Lord in a time of favor, I have answered you in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And you, you can notice here that Paul gives the quote from Isaiah and then he adjusts it. He says, now is that favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Paul is telling us this, that the church age, this age of grace-filled ministry is the ultimate fulfillment of what Isaiah was prophesying. We are the refugees come home. The people that were coming home 130 years after the exile had never seen it. Just like you and I had never seen the promised land. But when God rescued you and me, He made us refugees returned home. And He says, that was grace to you. What are you going to do with it? You remember those three returns to Israel? Each time the Babylonians said, anyone that wants to go back can go back. So 42,000 go back. And then 1,500 go back. Now maybe that sounds like a lot of people to you. 43,500 people. That was nothing compared to how many Jews had gone into Babylon. Millions had gone. And a minority, a pittance, is willing to make the journey back. What he's telling us is some people take grace in vain. They don't even want the journey. You know, Jesus comes and he says, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And people's ears perk up. And then Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. They're like, eh. Better the devil you know than the one you don't. I don't want that road trip. And so there were tons of Jews in Israel that are saying, I've got a business, i got a family, i finally got a house here. I'm not going anywhere. You want me to walk my wife and my kids all the way back to Israel where there's no walls, there's no temple, there's no business, and I'm supposed to start from scratch? No way, uh-uh, not going to happen. Guess what? I actually feel very Jewish here in Babylon and everything will be all right. God is giving them grace, calling them to himself, and they're saying, no, thank you. As you and I do ministry, we will run across lots of people like that. They are not interested in being a returned refugee to Jesus. Life is too comfortable. Life is too convenient. And frankly, the high cost of following Jesus seems too severe. But that's not the only ones. You see, Ezra and Nehemiah end very, very badly. After they rebuild the city walls, Nehemiah, the last chapter, he's walking around. And guess what he finds? He finds one room in the temple. It's just unbelievable. They cleared out a room where they were supposed to keep uh, lots of the instruments they used in temple worship, lampstands and, and braziers where they filled liquids and all this kind of, and jars and pitchers. And they cleared it out because it was a dude. There was one guy, he was like, man, it's too much walking home from the temple every day. And so he cleared out all this spot that was supposed to be housing the holy instruments of God, and he moved in there. He just built his house right there. I mean, because let's be honest, if you have to serve God, because doesn't it feel very constraining, grace, you're in a debtor, if you have to serve God, shouldn't it be as convenient as possible? And Nehemiah literally is like throwing furniture out of the temple. What is your major malfunction? He keeps walking. The city walls they built to protect the city. Guess what? The people are like, yeah, but merchants. It's really nice to have merchants come through. And so they have strangers and, and sojourners in the land that they don't know them. And they let them camp right up next to the walls every night. That would be like you putting a deadbolt in to your house and then attaching a card to your extra deadbolt key that has your address, going downtown in Columbia and just chucking out the window uh, with a note, gone every day, every Sunday from 10 to 12, help yourself. You put the deadbolt on all, all, all you want. You let everybody know when you ain't going to be there and give them an invite, they're going to come right in and take what you got. And Nehemiah says, we worked so hard to build all these walls, now you're letting people that could be enemies just camp there? He's like, get them out of here. He goes further. And guess what they'd done? They'd gone back and started to intermarry again with, with, with other folks in the land and worshiping their idols. They just got back out of exile and they went right to comfortability and convenience. It's just too hard to be a rescued refugee. 
It's too much work to pull under the burden and yoke of Jesus. The Corinthians wanted to minister as long as it was where it was comfortable and convenient. The Corinthians had lost the picture that they were exiles brought home. That's why Paul is pointing this out to them. He is literally asking, are you going to be like the refugees who came back and take the grace of God in vain, or are you also going to minister in love? Now, the application of this is just all too easy. We're coming out of a year of pandemic that emphasized distance, time alone, and frankly stood opposed to the norms of ministry. It's like not only is your flesh appealed to, just hang out with your family, you're commanded to do it. Just find ways creatively for you to spend time alone or go enjoy the outdoors. And, and you know what? We're actually even going to make church very easy for you because um, we want to serve you. You can do church with coffee and PJs at your convenience because it might be live stream, but you can just watch it later anyway. And, and we want to bless you because we know you're missing worship, and so here it is. And so all the ways, you don't have to do relationships with people. It's real easy to forbear people you never spend time with. There are idiosyncrasies, there are quirks, they don't rub you the wrong way. It's real easy because people don't even have the opportunity to sin against you anymore. And so we're coming out of a season that it's easy for people to forget that ministry is rarely convenient or comfortable. Will we forget that, ministry, that people are messy, relationships are hard, the Bible calls us to forbear one another? In other words, ministry will happen, listen now, with people who irritate you and sin against you. You will do ministry with people who take from you and from people who need you. You see, in Corinth, they hadn't had a pandemic. But some were just like the Jews in Babylon, far too comfortable to leave and travel where God wanted them to go. Even though Isaiah 49 that Darren read this morning promised a trip like no other trip where mountains are made into roads, springs of water flow freely by, food is available, and the master trail boss Jesus goes before them. Nope, they'd rather stay home. Others in Corinth couldn't fathom the kind of ministry that takes your free time and turns some of it into intentional preparation. It's so easy to just put, God's not going to care if I build my house in the temple. He just wants the ministry done. So I might as well make that the easiest for me as possible. The Corinthians could never have conceived of somebody that would, that would take their free time and dedicate that to study and teach a Sunday school lesson. They can't even wrap their brain. That's crazy. They can't wrap their minds around people who would give up their emotional space to help in nursery or to be a church monitor or play an instrument or to sing or to open their home to others for hospitality, to visit others or to take someone to the doctor, to reach out and call them and to care for them. They can't fathom that, to give up their time to sit in a church service when it's all too easy to just watch online. You see... When we forget grace, we forget that we were punished exiles that have been brought home. We sit up in our house, we look back and we say, man, that was a journey, but it's good to have arrived. We have not yet arrived home, folks. We are not there. We need a culture-transcending, mind-altering, heart-warming, new vision for ministry, and Paul gives us the picture. What's the picture of your ministry? You know, may we not minister as people born on third and think we hit a triple. But may we also not minister as people who think we've pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps. It's grace. What's the picture? When you think of ministry, what's the picture you have? A proclaimer inviting other refugees? Your ministry, your ministry right now, is that a good picture? Remember, whatever you thought of ministry at the start of the sermon, is it a picture, when you think of ministry, do you think of you sacrificially, lovingly, serving other people or is the reality the picture of your ministry is is you're frankly too comfortable to take the journey 
You can think of all the ways that people in Babylon convince themselves. I mean, God wants me to minister here. And, and God let me have a business here. And God let me have a house here. And God has, has let my kids get married here. And they found some wonderful spouses. And my grandkids are here. And we've got good health care. See, this is where God wants me to be. He doesn't actually want me to go back to Jerusalem. He didn't even make me go back, right? He just invited me to go back. We find all kinds of ways to convince ourselves that our comfort is a gift instead of maybe something to give up. Because the last time I checked, Jesus said the following of him is taking up your cross. Costly. Would a picture of your ministry be that you're too selfish to live sacrificially? Or maybe a good picture of your ministry would be you have arrived home, you're back in the land, and you are committed to serving the true king. Believers who see the reality of grace will minister out of love. Can I call you? Can I call you to realize that while there have been blessings of the last year, there are cursings. And the cursings are not bound up in Fauci, face masks, or vaccines. The cursings are bound up in whatever ways your flesh and my flesh have been informed that it's okay to no longer sacrificially do ministry. May we be a people filled with grace and driven by love to serve the lost of this community that need the Christ and the believers in this body who need to be edified. Father, we thank you for being a refugee rescuer. May we be a people on mission to do ministry this way. For your glory and for your kingdom and namesake, we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.